0: This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. I am delighted to be back here in the studio at the ANU's Crawford School with my co-host Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. I cannot tell you how excited we are to have another special guest here in studio today, I don't want to steal any of Alan's thunder, so instead I'm just going to offer our usual thanks before we get into it. Charlie Henshaw for audio editing, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music, and today Martin Pearce for technical support here in studio. With that, let me hand things off to Alan. Well,
1: thanks Darren. Look, we're really pleased to welcome as our special guest today, Paul Simon. Paul is the Director General of the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, more commonly known as ASIS. Now, the Australian intelligence community covers 10 agencies with an annual budget approaching $2 billion and and 7,000 staff. So it's a, it's big business. In my experience, when a story about the intelligence community comes up, the newspaper headline writers of this country will meet, reach immediately for the phrase top spook. In my time, top spookers has ranged from the head of I to the head of ASIO, uh, even, even ASD. But it's fair to say, I think that no one deserves the accolade in its traditional sense more than our guest. Uh, but that hasn't always been true because poor Simon's background was in another area entirely. He graduated from the Royal Military College Duntroon in 1982 and then spent 35 years in the Australian Army, including as Deputy Chief of Army. He served overseas as Australian Commander Middle East and earlier in the Regional Assistance Mission in the Solomon Islands, Ramsey, and in East Timor. From 2011 to 2014, he was Director of the Defence Intelligence Organisation and a close colleague of mine when I was heading the other national foreign assessment agency, the Office of National Assessments. Paul is an officer in the Order of Australia and he was appointed as Director General of ACES in December 2017. Paul, I think this is your first public interview, uh, so thank you and uh, and welcome to the Australia in the World podcast.
2: Oh, well, thank you, Alan, and thank you, Darren. What a small, intimate space this is. <laughs> giving away our secrets there. <laughs> um, but thanks, Alan, for the intro. Look, it, it, it is my baptism of, I hope, friendly fire. You said at the start that intelligence is a big business, and it's true. And I'm happy to talk about that. I think, you know, to do it well in the most difficult circumstances requires a serious investment in in people, in technology, in covert facilities, in our case, and a whole range of things. And perhaps just to sort of, for those wondering why I am here, we're not a publicity-hungry organisation. I think you would appreciate that. In fact, quite quite the opposite. I, but, I, think,
1: we, I think we should be very grateful for <laughs> <laughs> that form.
2: But... You and I had a conversation about this, Alan. No, no media and no profile presents its own problems. So here I am, and I look forward to having a conversation with you both.
1: Great. OK, well, look, let's begin with some historical background. The Australian government has been in the intelligence business for a long time. In 1901, in fact, the new Commonwealth government sent a French-speaking agent to New Caledonia to uh, gather information there about the uh, about what the uh, French colonial uh, uh, rulers were doing. ACES was originally established by the Menzies government in 1952, and it's fair to say, I think, that it was closely intertwined with the British Secret Intelligence uh, Service, MI6, at the time of its uh, birth. Even its existence was not publicly acknowledged for a further 25 years And it was only brought under formal legislation in the Intelligence Services Act of 2001. So, Paul, a very general question to begin with. What exactly is it that ACES does? Or maybe exactly is the wrong word. So what is it generally that ACES uh, does and and why do we need it?
2: Yes, well, let's leave exact to one side (laughs) at the moment. Uh, But I'll really try and help here, uh, Alan, I think the main area is foreign espionage it's described in different ways in different booklets but at the end of the day we do foreign espionage but there's a lot more to what we do another f- sort of five broad areas that I think you read your uh, listeners would be interested in we do attend to uh, kidnapping or safety of life issues of Australians should they ever find themselves in such a circumstance overseas and of course, they are very complex operations as you're dealing with either kidnap for ransom groups or individuals in a very, very difficult, find, that find themselves in a very difficult situation. But as a general rule, if if an Australian is is kidnapped or, or if there is a safety of life issue overseas, then ACES will turn its attention to, mm. to what it can do pretty well immediately. That perhaps segues to the next function, and that is liaison. Clearly, we are the Secret Intelligence uh, Service. we undertake foreign espionage, but we have literally uh, over two hundred partners uh, around the world that have a perform a similar function mm. in their national interest. And so should an Australian be kidnapped or there be a safety of life issue, then you know one of the first things that we would do is immediately reach out to all of those partners, liaison partners, we have, you know, immediate communications with them. And in the spirit of of partnership, ask the question, uh, can you provide us uh, any help? Can you provide us any insights? And it's quite surprising, um, depending on, you know, the, the situation and the environment, simply by asking that question, you can acquire a lot of information very, very quickly and then build your plan from there. We do undertake intelligence diplomacy and we build capability in the near region. So I'll just sort of touch on those. Intelligence diplomacy provides a circuit for government to have conversations with other governments, normally done by diplomats, and rightly so. But some conversations are sensitive, and sometimes it's left to intelligence chiefs to, uh, to have those conversations um, and provide Uh, with some countries that we deal with, or indeed some non-state actors that we deal with, open a dialogue uh, without it having the the exposure that uh, through diplomats it it might. Capacity building is about helping some of our regional partners strengthen their own capabilities, their own understanding of what's going on in the region. Uh, And then finally, we do achieve policy objectives, and we have done so for both sides of politics when they've been in government uh, under our Act Act, uh, the government can direct us to achieve certain policy objectives. It might be in people smuggling. It might be, you know, disrupting people smuggling businesses and the like. Um, but within our mandate, uh, we are, we're able to, to do that.
1: OK, now, look, you talked about foreign espionage as a sort of core uh, function. The world is a big place teeming with information. So why the need these days in these conditions for, some, for, for an organisation which uh, still does that?
2: Well, you're right. We're, we're overloaded with information. There's, there's no doubt about that. But why do we need an organisation like ACES? Well, I think, I mean, I've, I've touched on safety of life, kidnappings. I think there are skill sets and there's training that you need to be able to, to help in that type of environment. But with respect to the information that's swirling around if if you if you break it down as intelligence officers often do into capability and intent, so w- what are the capabilities that countries have in our region? How does that how do those capabilities bear in on our national interest? There, it is very true that there is a lot of information you can obtain through open source, uh, through commercial imagery that really helps you understand capability. Intentions, though, that's the hard part. Mm. What What is being said in forums, what is being said uh, overtly, um, as we know, both in our our public lives and our private lives, is not always the same as what we're saying behind closed doors. And we very much uh, look to build relationships with individuals, well-placed individuals, that can help us understand uh, what the thinking is behind closed doors, what under a set, certain set of, set of circumstances, might be uh, the option or the preferred option that a government might uh, pursue. And that gives us an opportunity to help our political leaders, but also uh, those in the policy world. And that's, that's a really hard place to work as you're trying to think through all and wade through all this information, but trying to distil down, what do I actually need to be be thinking about. So we do help in policy development. We take that as a very important part of our role. Uh, But understanding intention is something that's very hard to be obtained through, um, you know, open source material.
1: Yeah, I can understand that. Um, Your predecessor in this job, Nick Warner, who's now the Director General of ONI, spoke in the first speech given by an ACES head in 2012, I think, about, and I'm quoting him, the inevitable paradox inherent in publicising the achievements of an organisation whose activities are by design secret, so uh, what can you tell us about how ACES intelligence has made a difference to Australia's uh, foreign policy and security? You hinted at a couple of things there, but are there? Hmm. I mean, the uh, you know the Australian War Memorial is full of the accomplishments and hmm. achievements of the Australian Defence Force uh, over over the years. Your former home, what can you say about the? people you now work with?
2: Well, I guess you've touched on a, an aspect of our work that really impacts on the people that we seek to bring into ACES, um, because before trying to um, portray to your listeners uh, the types of successes that, that I'm happy to talk about, most of our success um, is done in silence. And so, to a large extent, the organisation is quite hermetically sealed And in in an environment where many of the younger members of our our workforce are used to uh, the centrality of the individual in social media, you know, what they're doing, their successes and all of that, um, that's the way many people have grown up. We, through our, I guess, recruitment and um, training processes and the like, really need to assure ourselves that our people can, you know, pull off some of the most remarkable um, achievements and it does remain hermetically sealed inside the organisation. I mean, it, it, it remains incumbent on me, obviously, as the Director-General, to make sure that we have inside the organisation appropriate means to uh, recognise and reward people. But, but a lot of the humour in the organisation, the enjoyment of the organisation is that we, we keep these successes um, to ourselves. Alan, you'll remember when you were Director General o and I think for very good reason, you know O&A um, really took on a a role to recognise individuals through the intelligence community, and it's done very quietly, and it's done in in uh, now O&I. Um, but that's a very important part that we recognise individuals and teams for their successes. But as you well know, it's it's done behind closed doors, and we have a you know, a little tink of, uh, of glasses at the end of it to congratulate people. They take that very, very, you know, they really love that because, you know, it has to be done uh, internally. Look, there are there are examples. There's one that I think about in my old job as, as director of DIO and work that we did with, with ASIS that would be uh, well-remembered by a lot of Australians, but the tragedy of, of MH17 uh, in 2014 and the 38 Australians that lost their lives. You know, in the, in the public domain, uh, countries are still arguing about who did what and uh, what happened and all of that. Organisations like the Defence Intelligence Organisation and the Secret Intelligence Service, as I sort of mentioned at the start, the moment something like that happens, it, it swings immediately into gear and organisations go onto a very much a, a 24-7 footing. Um, we, like all Australians with incidences like that, feel it very, very deeply and we, we take very seriously our responsibilities to try and inform the government uh, of exactly what's going on. And that's the type of intelligence work that, that does cost money, it leans on liaison relationships that I talked about before. It leans on people who are willing at no notice to go into very difficult environments to try and, you know, understand the environment and exactly what's going on. So, you know, there there are successes, intelligence successes like that, mm. uh, and they and they abound. But because a lot of our foreign espionage success, if I spoke about it, I think you'd appreciate fundamentally undermines, you know, bilateral relationships. So that's why when we talk about, you know, why why don't we have an official history? It, it's a very difficult issue. We are probably mm-hmm. the hardest organisation to write about our successes.
1: Well, you the last one, I think. Uh, we I are. Think every, every we are the last it. one. Yeah. Look, you talked about people you've got overseas and we talked about how, how much is uh, is known these days. Presumably, your you people in the field are not sort of deciding for themselves what sort of things they're going to go after. You know, this this seems interesting. I think I'll, re- I'll you know, try and find out more about it. How do you decide what it is that ASIS officers should collect information about?
2: Well, firstly, we don't decide, actually. It's um, at the highest level. It's the National Security Committee of Cabinet, under the chairmanship of the Prime Minister,
0: uh, who
2: provides priorities down to the intelligence community. And so, you know, we do get those priorities on an annual basis from the National Security Committee of Cabinet. And, you know, we are living in a disrupted world. You know, there's a whole PhD probably there for someone to actually (laughs) look at how those priorities from NSC have uh, evolved and, and changed over the years. And, and perhaps, you know, even the the accelerated speed with which these priorities are disseminated to intelligence agencies. But at the moment we we, we still get priorities from from NSC. We also then from there, uh, and this brings, I guess, into play, Alan, the relationship between assessment agencies and collection agencies. We fundamentally get our intelligence requirements from the assessment agencies, O O and I responsible to the Prime Minister and the Defence Intelligence Organisation, responsible to um, to the Chief of Defence Force and the Secretary of Defence and also the Minister for Defence. So I always used to say when I ran an assessment agency, what don't the collection under- agencies understand about how central we are and that they should dance absolutely to our tune because yeah, no, we are we had, at the I centre of we had
1: conversations <laughs> together about, <laughs> about that, this. About uh,
2: and, and, and I still hold to that view, but I would add this. There's a little parenthesis at the bottom. Uh, when you run a collection agency, you sometimes, in your darker moments, uh, pull your hair out and go, uh, what don't the under- assessment agencies understand about how hard it is to get some of this intelligence that they're after? Um, This is not about, you know, sidling up to someone in a cocktail party and reporting it back. It's very different than that. Um, And so it is uh, what we do requires a lot of discipline, a lot of planning, risk, the management of risk, Uh, in trying to answer those intelligence requirements. But at its heart, it's the assessment agency that give us the requirements and we do everything within our resources to answer those requirements.
1: In a democracy like ours, there's always a dilemma associated with those secret intelligence agencies. You're trying, as you just said, to do things that you don't want anyone to know about and in some cases which the Australian government could deny if they ever came out. So how can the Australian public be confident that you're acting in ways that are consistent uh, with the law and with our values when none of us knows what you're doing?
2: <laughs> Ellen, this, this question is really important to me. And I think one of the reasons that agencies should take the opportunity every once in a while to talk to the public as we are today about values um, about legality, about propriety, about internal culture, is it does give the public some sense of the type of people we are and the type of organisations that we we run. Accountability and the governance that we have in Australia uh, is quite profound. But I would characterise it this way: firstly, I would say that most accountability actually comes from inside the organisation. The scrutiny that we put. Uh, our people under um, the way that proposals come forward, the way that senior officers test all of the underlying assumptions behind the plans or the uh, proposals that come forward, uh, the way that we have a framework of, of risk and risk management, which is, a, which, I mean, we use a, an international risk standard, ISO 31000 is the basis upon which we do our risk assessments, um,
1: what, what does that, in, can you talk about that? What does that involve?
2: So it, well, it involves a, a contested discussion around what are all the risks. So, so on a, you know, on a, on a whiteboard, start there, mm. list out what are all the risks. Here's the intelligence requirement. Um, this is what people want to know. Now, let's look at what vectors we've got to be able to try and answer that question. Which of those vectors minimises risk? optimises deniability of us trying to answer the question. And as we look at a range of options to try and answer the questions, we will then lay out all of the the risks. Um, And and some of these are very, very tactical. These are actually meeting with an individual, all the risks inherent depending on the location and uh, who the person is that we're meeting. All of the risks are are, are laid out. And so the likelihood uh, that that risk may uh, arise is is debated within teams, um, and then I and then the consequence of were that risk to be realised, um, that is then also debated within teams and tested by those who are more senior and experienced, and every attempt is is, is examined to reduce, in any way, the, the the prospect of the risk being realised or or minimise the consequences to Australia, uh, to ACES itself. So that's a process that is just, you know, in the, in the DNA of the organisation. It's the way that we, we spend a lot of time managing risk and holding people to account for the way in which they have articulated the risk. I think that's the foundation of accountability for ACES. Uh, but, of course, there are two important, very important uh, external uh, elements of, of accountability. Uh, the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, the Honourable Margaret Stone, former federal court judge, um, uh, she and her people have very intrusive powers into uh, my organisation. She could literally walk in now and demand to see whatever she wants to see, and we are absolutely required under the law to hand that over to her.
1: It's a sort of standing Royal Commissioner's power, isn't
2: it? Indeed, mm. indeed. And so I think that she exercises uh, those powers uh, wisely, um, but no one should think that uh, she's a soft touch when it comes to accountability. Anyone that knows Margaret Stone mm. will know that she's mm. not. So uh, she's, she's hard on us and rightly so. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Uh, and, of course, then inside Parliament, the Parliamentary Joint Committee of Intelligence and Security, so 11 members from both sides um, who have in-camera hearings, so it's not open to the public the way Senate estimates are. Um, but, again, we spend time with those members one-on-one, but also we have, uh, we're have we we're, we're scrutinised by that committee as well.
1: There's been a big uh, debate about parliamentary oversight, and I don't want to go into all of that, but can you just tell us that, uh, what... Uh, Under under the current arrangements, the uh, PJCIS uh, has responsibility for. What what do they talk about when you go in? When it
2: comes to OASIS, it's uh, mainly to do with our budget. It's mainly to do with uh, our, um, uh, our settings, with our workforce, with diversity, with... Uh, gender, with workplace and health, health and safety issues, assuring themselves that we have the right practices in place. Areas lo- that I just touched on around um, risk management, um, we are offering to the PJCIS more and more uh, information around our internal policies. So, you know, data, big data is a big issue these, these days. How you uh, how you treat data, how you triage triage data, how you ensure that Australians' privacy is respected through the uh, millions of data sets that we have. Um, it, it, this is the sort of area that we're perfectly happy to brief PJCIS members on, and it gives them, a, I think, a better sense of uh, r- the, the seriousness, I guess, with which we take... Uh, the work that we do, but also our willingness to talk about issues that, you know, that bear in on accountability to to the parliament and to the public.
0: If I can chime in now, Paul, and ask a question from the point of view of someone who sits very much outside this world, um, unlike, unlike Alan, uh, you know, I'm an academic and I sometimes go in and I'm invited in to talk to, to government folks about some of the research that I'm doing. And... I'm very conscious of the fact that the people I'm talking to probably have security clearances. And I feel very apprehensive because I am working from open source, publicly available information, while my audience uh, has access to the latest intelligence uh, and I presume therefore knows a lot more than me about the given issue of the day. And so my question is how should someone like me as an academic, um, and indeed anyone who wants to contribute to um, the policy debate, um, and Australia's role in the world in international affairs, how should we be thinking about how to frame our contributions? How can we be useful and, and avoid a situation that I personally worry about, which is saying or writing something and having those in government say, in response, or roll their eyes and say, oh, bless your heart, if only you knew what we knew. Well, we're, we're touching on some deep anxiety here, aren't we, Darren? <laughs> this is,
2: this is going to become a therapy session. <laughs> Look, it's it's a really it's a really good question. Firstly, I would say, reading a lot of literature as I do, and work from think tanks and and those like you that are deeply enmeshed as a discipline in national security, intelligence matters, and the like, you, you're, you're fundamentally backing the right horse, and the information that you're able to acquire and write on and all of that, I think does the nation a great service, and I don't think you should. Um, I don't think you should resolve from any of that. <laughs> There'd be two comments I would make. One is that officials like me and, and others, people who work in the national security space, you know, we, we, always, we always walk a fine line because at the end of the day, um, we care about national security a huge amount and, and intelligence. We have, to, we have to be guarded with what we say um, when we're talking publicly but I think that it's, it's, a, it's a worthwhile investment for, you know, any academic to, to build relationships and trust on a one-on-one basis, um, because I think, you know, we, we all care about the same thing. We care about security. We care about the national interest. So um, without me going too far on this, I'd say, you know, just keep doing what you're doing and, and building uh, relationships both inside and outside of academia, because, um, people will help, and uh, but they will often do it just in a in a quiet way. and the And the second point I was going to make was that I, I, I said at the outset that um, you know what what people say publicly or privately to other individuals, and what they're thinking about, or what they're saying behind closed doors can often be two things. So I think always keep in the front of your mind that in national security intelligence matters, one should never be naive, and you're not. Um, but for those who are just starting on this great program in in what is a, a marvellous discipline, think very carefully about what is being said and whether it sort of stacks up with what real intentions might be. And, and don't go too far or be too naive here. You know, uh, this is a very, very old discipline, intelligence, and national security is something that is most honestly discussed behind closed doors. So just keep that in Mm. the back of your mind Mm. as well.
1: And look, as part of this therapy session, (laughs) uh, I
2: would just add,
1: and Paul would, I'm sure, agree with me, uh, because we both headed uh, assessments uh, and analytical organisations, that contributions made by academics and scholars and journalists and, uh, and thinkers uh, so the way in which we frame and think about the world is sort of fundamental to the, to the, uh, to the work that uh, the, the national security community has to do. So keep up the good work, <laughs> Darren. Um, Paul, there you said uh, you, you talked about uh, this as an old uh, profession just then, um, spying sometimes referred to as the world's second oldest uh, profession. So I want to move now onto the issue of whether it's also a disrupted uh, profession. And to do that, I'd like to quote from an article written last October in the journal Australian Foreign Affairs by the veteran uh, defence writer and advisor Patrick Walters, who's now with uh, Aspie, I think. Well, I know. And uh, Patrick wrote this. He said, A technological revolution is changing the way our intelligence agencies operate. It requires the development of new capabilities to to sift through the vast and growing digital domain to identify unusual activities, suspicious trends and tiny nuggets of vital information and to monitor and combat cyber espionage, hacking and online disruption. Coming to grips with issues such as big data, biometrics and surveillance technology, encryption, artificial intelligence and cyber security has already had a significant impact on the way the Australian intelligence community goes about its business, influencing the culture and practice of intelligence at the technical and operational level through to strategic assessment. Now, it's a a big question, but what has the technological revolution meant for an agency like yours, which is concerned with humans and their emotions. Uh, How do you define human intelligence in these times?
2: Well, it is a big question, Alan. Um, I I would start by saying that you you mentioned at the outset that we were created in 1952, and that's true, and very much MI6, as a a creature of MI6, and they certainly helped us. And and going back through the history Human intelligence right back in 1952 and ever since has always had a very strong technology dimension to it. You go back to secret writing, you go back to a, you know covert communications back in the 50s, really impressive technologies that MI6 uh, helped us with. So it's been in the, the DNA of ACES from creation. We have always had technical Specialist officers um, who have been an important carder uh, inside ASIS. Te- technology today is still vital. It's vital for officer safety. How we uh, how we can look after an officer if they get themselves into difficulty. Covert communications is uh, we need diversity in our covert communications, uh, and so we lever off our own people, our relationship with the British, our relationship with the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, We talked about massive data sets, so how you fuse those data sets using uh, the best technology you talked about, artificial intelligence and the like. But even things like highly secure IT systems, secure facilities that can use technology embedded into the facilities itself to give you assurance um, it, it's in our DNA to think about technology and how to use it, how it's both an opportunity and a, and a risk uh, to us. We keep a very close eye on um, venture capital because where venture capital money is going is where the technology mm. uh, is heading. So, you know, more recently it's with visualisation goggles and the like, and um, that's because that's where the market is. The you know venture capital is looking to where the next big market is. So we have a, a capability that surveils um, venture capital and where the money is going and what it's, what that tech- technology's application might be for a service like ours. Um, but we're also interested in uh, startups. You know, there's some very there's a very active startup community in Australia, uh, in our region, um, and and again we deliberately look at uh, startups, sort of micro companies with a really interesting technology with a view to um, either forming a relationship, adapting the technology and trying to build a sort of spiral of diverse technologies that we can use to look after our people and uh, communicate and do all those sorts of things. So I'd say it's we are part of that disrupted world. We have to be, and we have to be at the lead, leading edge of it. So it's sort of the way we, we think.
1: Yeah, so so for you, this um, recent developments like facial recognition and uh, and so on, you see this as all part of a, a, a continuous spectrum with which human intelligence has always had to contend.
2: It, that's right. And, of course, it is true that a lot of our intellectual capital goes into... Both the risks and the opportunities that all of those technologies provide—it it has to be we can't we can't do our business without thinking very carefully about all of those technologies. What are the implications of sensors and systems all being interlinked? What are the implications of uh, crossing through borders, where um, you know the the vision is that you won't have to have your passport stamp; you'll literally just walk through, and the cameras will provide all of the assurance that the border the border force needs.
1: Yeah, that's we could go for a long, <laughs> a long time on that, but I suspect we've reached the end of your willingness to talk for. So I'll move on to um, the the link between what you're doing now and what you were doing last. You were Australia's military commander in the uh, in the in the Middle East. In the uh, well, last in, uh, in in DIO, but before that in the in the Middle East, Aces in recent years has worked more closely with the ADF. Talked earlier about um, the contribution of ACES to sort of strategic level uh, policy making. How did ACES capabilities impact on you in the in the military? And can you can you say anything more about the work that ACES does in that liaison?
2: Certainly. I mean, again, back in back in the fifties, uh, the relationship with the military was very strong in that post Second World War environment and. A lot of the capabilities that uh, ACES built in the 50s uh, worked hand in glove with um, you know commandos and the like in the military. Really though since I think East Timor 1999 the relationship between the military and ACES has become very very close and now what I, would, what I would say is sort of additional force protection that ACES can provide the ADF. So, you know, the ADF manages its own uh, force protection using its platforms and its people to protect itself. But ACES works with Defence to provide even a, a an outer layer of force protection for, for the ADF. And it, it might be through those liaison relationships, it may be that we've penetrated non-state actors to provide insights into risks or threats to the ADF. And that's, so that's something that we do. And so look, it's, I think the relationship between the ADF and ourselves is, is very, very close. We've now, we now have sort of touch points with each other at every level. It's a it's a mutually reliant relationship.
1: What about the relationship with uh, with DFAT in the other in the other direction? I mean, you, that's been yeah. you're part of the same portfolio, yeah. the same minister. How how would you characterise the relationship between ASIS and DFAT? Uh,
2: well, it's I think it's a f- Great relationship. Um, I mean, my working relationship hasn't always been a great (laughs) relationship. (laughs) I have a tremendous working relationship with Francis, who's just a fabulous secretary, and and I think as sometimes these happens, it filters from the top, and you know the word gets down. But I I say this to our people, and and I absolutely mean it. Most of the messaging that needs to go in Australia's national interest should come from DFAT. that's their job. They're the diplomats. They do it well. Um, overt messaging and the messaging that, you know, our political leaders and our diplomats can do has got to be the front line of sending a very clear message about what we stand for, who we are and, and what our national interest is. But I guess what I was touching at at the very uh, outset about um, intelligence diplomacy is that we can work in parallel. And when DFAT and ACES are working well, which I'd say they are at the moment we can send parallel messages um, with DFAT taking the lion's share, but us complementing DFAT's work. And it might be through, you know, the language we use or the forums that we establish. Um, It might be activities that we do. But I I see us, you know, really working hand in glove in parallel with the majority being in the overt, but always any tier one nation will always have a covert capability that can parallel uh, that effort. And, uh, And I think that is the way that we, we work together. Um, we are not the silver bullet for anything. And um, with our most dangerous activities or high-risk activities, um, we have to um, discuss that with DFAT because at the end of the day, if something goes wrong, and, and, and there is th- these are not zero-risk activities, we, we don't do zero-risk activities, um, if something goes wrong, then there will be a price to pay, a bilateral relationship problem that ultimately DFAT, um, parliamentary, le- you know, pol- political leaders, the foreign minister has to deal with. So I take very seriously, you know, my any time all, all the time that I have with the foreign minister and with DFAT to make sure that we're we're not stepping ahead of their comfort level.
1: One, one of the interesting things about that is that ACES um, has Traditionally, the Australian intelligence community has traditionally been divided into collectors and assessors. Mm-hmm. But f- from the description you've given, we should think of ACES as an action organisation as well as a collection
2: organisation. That's right. I mean, I th- we, we, under our mandate, we could do both. So we, we can be a, a tool of government in a deniable and covert way to achieve an outcome. We're not the silver bullet. We shouldn't be the the agency of choice to do that. But in the in, in the golf in in the golf bag with lots of clubs, uh, there is a place for an organisation like like Aces. And you know the Prime Minister, the Foreign Minister, um, they know what we're we're capable of of achieving. And as I said earlier on, you know both sides of politics, when in government, uh, have enjoyed Aces undertaking activities in the national interest as directed by the government in a lawful way where we've managed risk uh, and we've achieved an outcome for them with the successes being celebrated inside the organisation and not mentioned outside.
1: Um, Now, you've talked a couple of times about the relationship with the Brits and the the Americans, um, all part of the so-called Five Eyes partnership. Uh, but You've also discuss as well the sort of uh, intelligence links that you have with other countries. How, how central is the Five Eyes relationship uh, for you?
2: Well, the Five Eyes relationship is very central and I, and I talked about technology and I think that I've also talked about accountability and governance. So, you know, closed societies don't have the accountability and the governance regime that I talked about when I talked about Inspector General of Intelligence mm. and Security, the PJ, they don't have those. They don't have that level of accountability or uh, or governance. Open societies do, and we should be proud of that. But one of the ways that I think we address that difference is that we use these partnerships. Um, we use uh, the different uh, skill sets of, of the people that we've got, the minds, the sharing that we can do to address the fact that we do, um, we, we are part of an open society and proudly so. Um, but there has to be some mechanisms by which we can ensure that we have a, a marginal advantage over those who are, you know, who are operating under a different set of arrangements. And and the Five Eyes is part of that. That's perhaps the, uh, the clearest way I could put it. But I also mention beyond the Five Eyes, there are, an extraordinary number of other partners we've got, and I talked about you know more than more than two hundred, and that's true. And the way I think about that is that if if you look, for example, in counterterrorism, and and say the nexus between what's going on in the Middle East and let's say Southeast Asia, and the the flow potentially of trained individuals from the Middle East making their way back into Southeast Asia and the the concern that presents to us as a nation. What liaison liaison does is I I don't want to spend a dollar more than I need to uh, having a footprint and and a whole range of stations in the the Middle East. Um, If I can lever off a liaison relationship that provides me trusted intelligence or information, to help me build a better picture about our region and and what's going on on in the region, then that investment in the liaison relationship is significantly cheaper (laughs) than opening a station and conducting operations in the Middle East. So there are a number of different ways you can cut this, but for me, we count... Every dollar, and we anchor the dollars to the national interest and to our near region and the priorities that government gives us. So again, if I don't need to spend a dollar over in you know the Middle East or in Europe or somewhere else, then I won't. So it it, it really gives us
0: exponential benefit. Paul, uh, let's talk about recruitment. Uh, I imagine you need people in your organisation who come from a, a wide range of backgrounds broader, I imagine, than you would normally find in the public service uh, here in Canberra. How do you become an intelligence officer at ACES and what sort of people are you looking for? Oh, thanks, Darren. Firstly, you're right, wider and broader than you might think.
2: Failure for me would be if people looked at a person in a particular way and said they must be an ACES Mm -hmm. officer. We deliberately uh, go very diverse, diverse in age, you know, some of our, some of our officers, um, met a number of our officers, you know, have run businesses. They've made a lot of money in business, and then they've got to a point in their life where I, where they go, well, I actually want to do something more than just make money. Like I know how to do that. Tick. I actually want to do something really interesting for the nation. So it is true we are advantaged by the fact that if people know about us. <laughs> Uh, and I'll come to that. Uh, but if people know about us, it's a very, very diverse array of people that we have. And the mantra for us is you should never be able to look at someone and say, well, I reckon they're an ASIS officer because actually the most unlikely people in the crowd uh, quite possibly are ASIS are officers. So, so diversity for us is crucial in every sense uh, of, its, of its meaning. The type of people that we are, I mean, we do have a grad program, that's true, but it's a quite small component um, we have technologists, we have data scientists, we have data engineers, we have sparkies, we have chippies, we have locksmiths, <laughs> hardly surprisingly. Uh, I was talking to you, Darren, about lawyers. We've got lots of lawyers, people who have attained brilliant results, found themselves in a brilliant law practice, and then they look ahead at life's journey and go, actually, that's not what I want to do. So look, we we have a very diverse workforce. Um, To answer your question, actually, if people go to aces.gov.au, it's a website. You go to it, there's a little icon there saying now recruiting. Uh, You hit a button, say, attend the interview. We did You actually then put your headphones on and you watch what we call the most interesting job interview, which you may have seen was a campaign that we ran last year and we're about to to rerun it, but it's called the most interesting job interview. It's worth doing even if you don't want to join, but you go to asus.gov.au, click on the um, attend the interview and just work your way through that most interesting job interview. See if you think you're the right person.
1: It must be difficult to get people with the right sort of psychological Disposition. You need people who are both sort of who who are sort of extroverts in the in the, in determination to and willingness to get out into the world, but also people who are completely satisfied to celebrate their successes in the way you were talking about before. So, have you got any sort of sense of what percentage of the applicants you who come to you turn out to be? right for the job?
2: Uh, it's a small percentage, Alan, actually, um, and the and the testing regime is both objective and subjective. So there's a, a battery of tests, uh, you know, IQ and a whole series of tests that we we put, through peop- put people through as you'd expect. But we have operational psychologists and psychologists in the organisation who play a very, very important role, as do intelligence officers themselves in, in talking to candidates and really getting to know them. So it's hard to put your finger on it. I, I keep a close eye on this because we don't want to just uh, select our own. Um, but but I would say this, one, one is um, quiet achievers in life are, are good. You know, people who, um, the, the ones that you went through school with that, you know, achieved but never beat their chest about it, actually just there was a certain self-contentment about what they'd achieved. You know, so quiet achievers are, are really good. And, and then... I think you know the the second thing is, and you'd know this this Alan, but uh, I can't quite put my finger on it. But when you've met a really good intelligence officer and you've been conversing with them, you walk away from the conversation going, you know, I I divulged (laughs) far more than I had intended to. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) And our our really good IOs do that, and they do that to me, and I'm the boss, Uh, and. and and they do it they do it brilliantly. So there is there is a but there's both an objective and a subjective nature to, to selecting good intelligence officers. But you know we're very fortunate we, we have them in an ab- in abundance and uh, and I'm terribly proud of them. And I wish, in many ways, we could you know have more conversations like this to assure the public they care. They're quite achievers. Uh, we're hermetically sealed. We have to be for good reason. We love what we do. We take uh legality, propriety, our internal culture very, very seriously. Uh, we're very diverse uh, and it's a great place to work.
1: Well, I hope we do have more conversations like this, uh, Paul. It was really good of you to um, give up this time and to, to come out of the shadows for, uh, for, for a little while like this. As someone who's been in the privileged uh, position over, you know, very many decades really of seeing some of the, uh, of the great work that uh, ACES uh, does. It's uh, fantastic to be able to hear about the, the way in which the organisation is uh, now operating and respond, responding to these new challenges. So on behalf of the Australia in the World podcast, it was a wonderful day you here. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.
2: And thanks, Darren.